This is Blankenship on Trial, West Virginia Public Broadcasting's podcast about former Massey CEO Don Blankenship and the Upper Big Branch Mine Disaster. I'm Scott Finn, Executive Director at West Virginia Public Broadcasting. We'll look at the evidence, the arguments, and why it matters. This is Blankenship on Trial. I'm Scott Finn. After 10 days of deliberation, jurors have found former Massey Energy CEO Don Blankenship guilty of conspiring to willfully violate federal mine safety laws at the Upper Big Branch Mine. But Blankenship was found not guilty of the two charges that he lied to investors and federal officials. Here to discuss the verdict and its implications is West Virginia Public Broadcasting's Ashton Mara. Hi. Hello, Scott. And Charleston attorney and former assistant U.S. attorney Mike Hissom. Hey. Hey, Scott. Mike is joining us from Illinois. Well, first of all, Ashton, what does this mixed verdict mean? A mixed verdict like this essentially means that the jurors didn't fully agree with either side. He's been found guilty on one misdemeanor charge of conspiring to willfully violate federal mine safety laws. So with that charge, he faces up to one year in prison. But that's if he's given jail time at all. The two felony charges that allege that he lied to investors and to federal securities officials, those carried the heavier sentences of up to 25 years combined at their max. It was obviously an emotional day for the family members who lost loved ones in the accident, as you can imagine. Judy Peterson lost her brother in the explosion. He was the section foreman of the long wall section where the explosion happened. And after the verdict, Peterson said she was satisfied with the outcome. I did think about my brother, Edward Dean Jones, and he is vindicated today. Even though Mr. Blankenship may not be convicted of all of these crimes, he is guilty, my friends, and he is not guilty of just being a liar, cheating, fraud. He is guilty of the reckless disregard of human life. Do you hear me, what I'm saying? The reckless disregard of human life and the loss of 29 souls through that reckless disregard and negligent homicide, through greed, through, through just his greed. So, Mike, are you surprised at all to hear the verdict was split in this way? I'm not, Scott. Uh, Counts two and three, which charged a false statement filed with the SEC in a press release and and securities fraud to the investing public in a press release after the explosion, were novel and difficult charges. And based on the notes that the jury sent out during the trial, something that they struggled with. charging as crimes, broad, somewhat general statements in a press release. As to count one, it's a conspiracy, which is, as as we've talked about before, a broad tool for federal prosecutors to use. And the question of the penalty, uh, which object of the conspiracy the jury selected, was something that honestly may not have been abundantly clear to the jury. They weren't told that the penalty would change so dramatically based on which check mark they put next to which line. And they checked the first line, which is the conspiracy, the object of which was to violate the federal mine safety standards. They did not check the second line, which was a conspiracy to defraud MSHA, Mine Safety and Health Administration. And had they checked that second box, it would have been a five-year statutory maximum penalty uh, and a much more significant, a felony, a much more significant crime. Um, but I don't think it's surprising at all that the jury that the jury came down that way. And so it's important to note here that it ended up being a misdemeanor crime that they that he was convicted of, and and not the other felonies that they could have convicted him of, as, as you're saying. Ashton, the U.S. Attorney's Office spent five years investigating this case. After all this time, was U.S. Attorney Booth Goodwin satisfied with the outcome? 
he says that he was. Uh, Mr. Goodwin held a press conference after the verdict, and he said he and his team of attorneys in the office, they were celebrating the verdict. He called it a victory. Here's a portion of what he had to say. I'm not in any way disappointed uh, with this result. I think it brings justice, uh, justice that was long overdue in this case. I I think the the most serious conduct, certainly, that he was uh, involved in, that is the defendant, was willfully violating the mine safety laws and placing his minors, uh, those who work for him, at risk. So certainly, I think that the, the jury's verdict uh, speaks volumes in this case. So, Mike, you were involved as a former assistant U.S. attorney in the initial phases of this investigation before Blankenship was involved, but but still the upper big branch investigation. You've worked for and with Booth Goodwin, the U.S. attorney in this. What is your assessment of how they prosecuted this case? I think Booth Goodwin, um, and honestly, from his swearing-in ceremony about a month after the explosion, Scott, made it clear that he was going to take a fresh look. And as we've talked about before, he was going to have the FBI, not MSHA, he was going to have the FBI run this investigation and that he was going to seek to hold individuals accountable and that he was going to go higher up the corporate chain. And the takeaway from from Booth Goodwin and from Steve Ruby, the assistant United States attorney who was the the first chair lawyer at Mr. Blankenship's trial and who's led this investigation, their takeaway will be that they did that, that they, for them, it will be mission accomplished. They convicted the CEO of a publicly traded coal company uh, for mine safety violations, for a conspiracy to break the mine safety laws. That will be their talking point. And um, there are two prosecutors who do not focus particularly on the number of days that any particular defendant is going to serve in a federal penitentiary. They focus instead on convictions and on convictions of some significance. And for them, they will consider that to have been victory. Right. I think, And I think that came across pretty clearly in the press conference as well. Steve Ruby made a brief statement at the end of the press conference and said that you can't judge justice by the length of time a defendant or uh, someone who is convicted will spend in jail. And Mr. Ruby, I think, and Mr. Goodwin, they were both very satisfied that someone was held accountable, that jurors agreed with them that something was wrong here. And I would not assume at this point that Don Blankenship is not facing a 12-month prison sentence. It's just far too early to assume that. And if you draw on a recent analog in this district, in the Southern District of West Virginia, a case that Booth Goodwin and Steve Ruby prosecuted, the former Mingo County prosecutor Michael Sparks pled guilty to a single-count misdemeanor. He was convicted, of course, because he had pled guilty, and he was sentenced to 12 months, and he served every day of 12 months. It is not uncommon for a defendant, especially in a high-profile case, who has pled guilty or been convicted of a misdemeanor to receive a lengthy sentence, including up to the statutory maximum. And that's something that's very different from what people think about with a misdemeanor, especially a state misdemeanor, like a traffic violation. This isn't the same thing. There is, uh, the defense team will be taking this very seriously and will be very concerned that at the sentencing hearing that Judge Berger is going to sentence Don Blankenship to 12 months. They, that will be their concern. Another thing that I think is important to consider when it comes to the sentencing, though, is Judge Berger herself. And she doesn't necessarily have a reputation for being a light sentencer. Um, This week, 
while the jury was deliberating, she had some sentencing hearings. She went away, she went ahead with some of her cases. And I sat in particularly on a, on a hearing of a woman who had pled guilty to counterfeiting of turning $1 bills into $100 bills and using those in stores in the Beckley and Columbus areas. And the max sentence, I think, for her counts was somewhere in the range of 20 to 24 months max. And Judge Berger gave her 36 months. So she went beyond the federal guidelines. She does have this reputation, I think, within the district of being hard on defendants. And so coming up with a 12-month sentence, I'm not sure that that's unreasonable for us to believe that she'll do. Still, though, uh, from a layperson's perspective, Mike, it's hard to understand how it is that lying to your investors is a felony, but conspiring to violate mine safety laws can be a misdemeanor. What is it about federal law that treats one much more seriously than the other? Well, this has been one of the controversies uh, since Upper Big Branch and actually since earlier disasters, since an earlier, uh, an earlier disaster within the Massey Company, Aracoma. The controversy is that these provisions of the mine safety laws, which are set forth in the Code of Federal Regulations, they're administrative regulations promulgated by MSHA, that they're misdemeanors, that if you violate them, they're misdemeanors. They're not felonies. And that has been that has been something of controversy. It's something that, that certain politicians have talked about changing. It hasn't happened. Um, it, because of that, because of those lesser penalties, is why the government here charged these additional crimes and charged the alternative conspiracy in count one, the conspiracy to defraud MSHA. But as you see, it, it didn't succeed. Um, and that, that is probably testament to something that we've talked about at length, which is the difficulty of going after the top of the corporate food chain, so, of how hard it is to obtain a conviction. So Ashton, Mr. Blankenship was not let out of the courthouse and sent to jail, right? Could you explain what happened and what's going to happen next? Right. So after the verdict was given, Steve Ruby made a motion that he would like to have Don Blankenship detained. He said that he poses a flight risk. That basically he has, although he had to give up his passport as as part of the original bond, He has the ability to leave the country if he really wants to. He has basically the financial means to do so. He moved to have him detained. And then he said, if you're not going to detain him, we'd like to impose a $10 million bond and home confinement. But Judge Berger basically said, you know, Mr. Blankenship has been cooperative. He's been present at every hearing. He's been attentive. And she didn't see any reason to change any part of his bond. So the original bond has been kept in place. It's a $5 million cap bond. He's given up his passport. He's not getting that back. And he has travel restrictions placed on him. He'll have to stay in the Southern District of West Virginia. He's allowed to go to Pike County, Kentucky and to D.C. where his attorneys are located. And of course, he will be appealing. Uh, We heard from his lead attorney, Bill Taylor, who said that they plan to do that as soon as possible. Right. So today was really the first time that we got to hear from Taylor at all. He did speak to reporters and he was critical of both the prosecution and of Judge Berger's rulings in the statements that he made. Well, we have a lot of grounds for appeal that go back to the insufficiency of the indictment in the first place, not to mention evidentiary rulings and so forth. Now, this this is a record which will be very full of errors on appeal. I'm as confident as I've ever been that the Court of Appeals will reverse the conviction. Mike, what do you think of the defense's chances of getting this reversed? 
I think they're extraordinarily difficult. Um, the the current makeup of the Fourth Circuit, um, the Fourth Circuit has historically been a difficult case for a, a difficult court for a defendant to succeed in in, in obtaining a reversal of conv- conviction. And given the current makeup of the 15 judges who serve on the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals, I think it would be very difficult for Don Blankenship to uh, reverse this misdemeanor conviction. Um, I think the Fourth Circuit will take a close look at it. I think that the, they will allow him oral argument, which is not something that they do in every case, but I think in a case of this uh, high profile, they will. Um, but I think that he will be fighting an uphill battle. What are the issues that you expect them to appeal? I think one of the, the first ones and something that bothered them and has been a big issue is the omission of the citations, um, the actual IMSHA citations being admitted into evidence when they weren't issued to Don Blankenship and Don Blankenship didn't see them. That's something that was that was commented on throughout by the defense team. The uh, One of the other things is the inability through the government's witnesses to play uh, videos that they called exculpatory that helped Don Blankenship, and they were videos of particularly a safety meeting at Scott High School that the company put on uh, to stress the importance of safety. I think it's also uh, safe to assume that the defense will renew their attack on the failure of the judge to sever count one, the count that led to a conviction, from counts two and three. Counts two and three were important, very important to this trial, even though they did not result in a conviction, because they allowed the government to talk about the explosion at Upper Big Branch, because the press release followed the explosion, and they allowed the government to talk about Don Blankenship's immense personal wealth and his stock options and play many recordings that were very unfavorable to Don Blankenship. Given that he was acquitted on counts two and three, I think that'll be a focus to say these were improper. The jury didn't even convict on them, and it tainted the trial for the jury to hear these two categories of evidence. It tainted their verdict on count one. So, Ashton, you've been covering this thing from the very beginning. What are some of the impressions of this trial that you're going to take away? I think that maybe it's just because of what I do and who I am. But the things that stick out to me are those emotional moments where I connected with people. So probably because it's still fresh in my mind, but sitting with the family members as we waited for the jury to deliberate. That's something that will always stick out to me. The testimony of the miners who worked underground, who testified about these conditions that they had to work in, specifically the miner who said that he had to walk through water up to his chest. And then, of course, Bill Ross. His testimony was so emotional that you could tell that he truly wanted to make a difference. I think those emotional moments, those are the ones that are going to stick with me the longest. And I would add to that that Steve Ruby's rebuttal closing argument for the government, where he seized on all of that testimony and asked the jurors to imagine, and every sentence began with imagine, imagine yourself in this position. And that's something that's confused a lot of lawyers, because one of the things that, that everybody says is you can't make a golden rule argument. You can't ask in a criminal, in a typical criminal case, you can't ask the jurors to place themselves in the shoes of the victim. The reason Steve Ruby was able to do that, because the victim of the crime that was convicted was Imsha. It wasn't the individual minors. It wasn't the, it wasn't the 29 men who died. And that's why Steve Ruby was able to do that. And I think, as Ashton says, that testimony was effective. And him bringing it home for the jurors and the last thing they heard before they deliberated, I think, was effective on count one. Do you think, and you are working in the industry still, you're representing companies now as part of your job in private practice, Mike. Do you think this will have that sort of impact? Do you think that 
tomorrow morning when people are reading the headlines about this, that executives in industries, coal and other, will look at this and say, I better be careful? Or do you think they'll write it off as an anomaly? You know, Blankenship had some very unusual um, things. He was a micromanager. He taped his his own um, phone calls. Will they look at it and say, well, that will never happen to me. This is an unusual case. I think some people will do that. Some some executives, probably at smaller or privately owned uh, businesses, I think you could expect to say, well, I'm not Don Blankenship. I don't behave like him. I don't have that big of a target painted on my back. I don't tape my, te- tape my telephone calls. I think at larger companies, though, at publicly traded companies, and again, not just mining, but any heavily regulated industry, I think you can expect those types of environments to focus on this and say, look, this isn't something that we want to have happen, regardless of whether you can even potentially obtain an acquittal. It's not something we want to have happen. We don't want our CEO to be under indictment. We as a company don't want to be under indictment. It's important to remember that something that that Booth Goodwin did and that I was involved with before I left the office was the non-prosecution agreement with Alpha, and that was the corporate-level resolution, and it was $209 million. So there's the dollars and cents component. There's the bottom-line component for the companies themselves as well. It's not just the CEO. It's what are we going to have to pay if we have a CEO who behaves like this? If we have a CEO who has done these things and there's an incident, what are we going to have to pay, both in terms of our leadership and in terms of a financial pain, a financial penalty to the United States. Ashton, I have to ask you this. Um, obviously, it's a side issue to the importance of the actual trial, and yet there have been rumors and some speculation that U.S. Attorney Booth Goodwin may choose to run for governor. Do we have any indication now that the trial is over what might happen with that? There are lots of rumors, but during the press conference today, Mr. Goodwin kind of took a second to say, okay, are there any more questions? And everybody looked around. So I took the opportunity and I said, you know, this may be premature, but does this verdict have any implications on your political future? And he was not prepared for that question. He stammered for a little bit, but ultimately ended with saying, you know, this right now I'm focused on celebrating this victory with my team. But, you know, it does have implications on his political future, whether that is a future that's staying in the U.S. attorney's office, because now he's tried what could be considered the case of a generation. Where does he go from here? Um, But it could also mean that he has now this to campaign on. I went after a major CEO. I tried to vindicate the deaths of these minors. You know, that is something to campaign on. And he'd be campaigning against the billionaire uh, coal mining magnate Jim Justice. Mm-hmm. That could be a really interesting thing to see. So we'll know by January at the latest because he'll have to uh, put his hat in the ring by that deadline. So we will see. You know, I really want to add this, end this, though. It's a very important to end it where it should end, which is thinking about these 29 men who lost their lives and the families that they left behind who have been such a um, important part of this trial and this whole process. Ashton... What's your sense of what this trial and this verdict means to them? As I've spoke with the families throughout the trial, especially during deliberations, because we had a lot of time just sitting around, for them, uh, for I'll say for a few of them, it was anything. I'll take anything. Anything is better than letting him walk away. And I think although they were disappointed that it just came down to a misdemeanor, 
somebody stood in court and still said that this man is guilty of something. I think that it will give them some closure eventually. There was one woman I talked to, Shirley Witt, who lost her brother in the accident, and she said that closure hasn't come for me yet, but the day that he's sentenced, I think that closure will come. So I'm sure that these family members, not all of them were at the trial. I'm sure they all have different stances, but for those few that I got to spend time with, they wanted to hear somebody say that he was guilty of something, and they also didn't want a hung jury. They didn't want to have to sit through it all over again. So I think that the few that were there, they were satisfied. Mike Hissom, an attorney with Bailey and Glasser, who has volunteered his time to monitor this case and to explain it to all of our listeners and to so many other people in the media. Mike, thank you so much for doing this. It's a real a pleasure to talk to you and to get to know you, and I appreciate you explaining what's going on to the community. Thanks, Scott. Happy to do it. And Ashton Mara is Assistant News Director here at West Virginia Public Broadcasting um, and has done, I have to say, I'm a little biased, but a spectacular job covering this trial and making it both understandable but also helping us to relate to what's going on with the families, which is really the important thing at the end of the day. So, Ashton, thank you for all you've done and all the hard work and long hours you've put in. Yeah, thank you, Scott. This is Blankenship on Trial and signing off for West Virginia Public Broadcasting. I'm Scott Finn. Blankenship on Trial is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. See illustrations from the trial, daily updates, and more on our website, wvpublic.org. And make sure you follow us on Twitter for the latest, at Ashton Mara and at WVPublicNews. Thanks for listening.